Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thanks for joining me today. It's been a wonderful uh, hour last with Guy Talk, and now we're doing the extended play version of Guy Talk. This is like the British version. And if you ever get the British album, they always have the extended play of any song. So that's what it's we're the do. best. Do you know what that song is that they were just playing? Of course I do. Oh, okay. You mean the the song that yeah that was just introed? Yes. By Fleetwood Mac. Yes. Yeah. Can you sing the lyrics? I I can actually. Bend down yeah. one time. I can, okay. but please don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so we're going to continue our guide talk, and we're going to um, just uh, reintroduce the power panel. We've got pastors Tom Brock and Tom Parrish and Justin Jepson and Peter Kapsner. That's the group today. And uh, I'm going to jump into something that uh, Tom Parrish prompted me to. Jesus defined the problem with humans when he said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Matthew fifteen nineteen says, uh, where is, that's what Matthew fifteen nineteen is. So where is the voice of the church addressing the real issues Jesus identified instead of letting our politicians and radicals telling us what to do? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that I'm not sure how many leaders believe that anymore. I mean, we have been so inundated and being told poverty is the major cause, yeah. culture is the major cause, uh, you know, uh, male masculinity is the cause, that we have forgotten Jesus' words because he said, you're not my problem, Bill. You know, society is not my problem. I'm my problem because it's out of my heart mm-hmm. that I have the evil thoughts and the evil desires. And until I give those over to Jesus, I will always blame somebody else. You know, it's it's human nature. I will always find a way to say it's Tom's fault or it's Rebecca's fault or it's your fault rather than saying I'm the problem. Saw a cute cartoon. It showed a little girl in a room. And uh, the, the the caption down below said, uh, discovering where your problems lie. And then there were six mirrors on the wall. Every mirror she looked in. <laughs> That's true. And we should have that. I think that should be in the narthex of the church. I, Big I, mirror. I was driving. I was dried sailing on my way to the radio studio today. So about an hour ago or two. I'm passing a very liberal United Church of Christ uh, building, and on their marquee it says, we are a just peace church. Now, a lot of people would not know what that meant. I know what it means. What does it mean? Which is, we're into transgenderism, LGBT, we're into Black Lives Matter, we're into, uh, uh, you know, reparations. Every liberal social cause they're into. But I could almost bet my bank account, if you went there on a Sunday morning, you wouldn't hear, we're sinners deserving hell. There is a hell and a heaven. You need Christ to be saved. But they'll be preaching, I'll say it again, the three pillars of liberal theology. Remember this? Number one, God is nice. Number two, we too should be nice. Number three, isn't that nice? That is what you get when you go to these uh, liberal churches. So what Tom's talking about, we got to get back to, we're all sinners worthy of hell, and Christ is the only way to be saved. That's what our message is. I mean, we got to talk about toplessness and abortion and everything else, too. But that's not the meat and center of our, of our message. I mean, I remember asking somebody once, 
when's the last time your pastor preached on hell? And the response was, I don't think he's ever preached on hell. Well, Jesus talked about hell rather frequently. So let me hear one more word. And then Justin and Peter, I want you to get in here. I've been with a lot of people at the moment of death, more than 50, where I literally held their hands, talked to them, been there with them. I have run into some of the hardest nosed people in the world who would fight everything we're saying here, tooth and nail, until that last moment. And suddenly, many of them get real honest and really start to talk about the fact that I'm a very sinful man, or I've really been rebellious, or I've really not done well in life, and I know Jesus won't accept me. Great opportunity to lead somebody to Christ, but I've seen a lot of that, and so I've often told people, you can wait as long as you want, but Jesus will be there at the end, and you still have to give an account. And he who Bill, can you read still... the passage again? Too, I just I, I, there's a there's a piece of it I was uh, yes. I didn't for, quite catch. Yeah, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Yeah, and this is where Justin, I would love to, for you to chime in from your perspective on formation too. But I think what I love about that passage is that uh, it's an invitation to think about what it means to reorient or, or to experience a transformation of our heart. And, and certainly in the thinking of biblical times in which that passage was written, there is the idea that a person's heart was sort of the, the inner seat of their attitudes and of their values, of their, uh, of their dispositions and everything. And, and sometimes I think we may have stripped Christianity of its power a little bit in focusing on telling people to change their behaviors without recognizing that, that a person's behavior is what's going to naturally flow from their heart. And, and you can try to grit your teeth and try to do something different than what your actual values and attitudes and dispositions are, but that doesn't last very long. And, and sort of hypocrisy in its very definition means that my behavior does not actually match what's going on in that inner world of the heart of dispositions and attitudes and behaviors. And so when, that, that's why Jesus was so... Um, so vitriolic, actually, with the Pharisees, because they were always focusing on external behavior and didn't understand that God actually has a capacity to take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh and change it so that it's actually oriented in a real way towards the things of his kingdom. So he would say things like, yeah, you've heard it say don't commit adultery, but let me just poke into that a little bit and, and tell you that if you are uh, lusting after a woman in your heart, you're doing the same thing. And and so quit focusing on all these external behaviors as if you can be made holy and new by them. You need to invite the reality of God through his spirit because of the work of the cross into your heart to change those things. And and Justin, I know that from a formation perspective, I mean, that's that's really the heart of formation, and, and that's so much the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what What, what came to my mind, too, as, as, as uh, Bill read that scripture um, was a I'm sure you maybe heard of it, but uh, that you know, several decades ago, G.K. Chesterton was asked by um, a, a local newspaper to write a piece on what he thought the greatest problem in today's society was, and he he wrote back the simple uh, one-sentence answer. He said, "You know, dear sirs, I am." Period. Done. Signed. Signed. G.K. Chesterton. In other words, he was recognizing that he's the biggest problem. Mm -hmm. You know, and and taking that personal responsibility for really ultimately the matters of of the heart, and you know, there's those that say you know you can't legislate morality, and we can't you know say that we have it better than somebody else. But I mean, everyone's legislating morality, but what we can't legislate is is the heart. Mm -hmm. And and I think you know when it, for someone like G.K. Chesterton to say that that I I have a I have contributed to the problem here that matters of the heart. Um, we, we can't create that through external 
um, legislative means. Um, there, there has to be an, an internal working that really is only possible through the supernatural conviction of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I, it also brings to mind, too, in the terms of that, you know, Peter, to your comments about just that, that area of formation, what what takes place, you know, at the heart level. And, and Dallas Willard writes about it in his book, on The Renovation of the Heart, um, this VIM strategy or VIM strategy, where it's vision, intention, means. And this idea of vision, we got to have a clear picture of what we're what we're going after. Um, what, what is the greater good? What is the goal? That's the what. We need to have the right intention. In other words, the right motivations and the reasons why we want to do what we want to do. And then we need to have the right means. That's the how. And and I think that you know sometimes we can get tripped up. Um, maybe we have the right. That we can unite around vision, but we have the wrong intentions and we have the wrong means. And so, and I think when it comes to matters of the heart, um, it really, I mean, that's the beauty of the kingdom, right? Is that it goes to straight to the matters of the heart. It doesn't attack symptoms and try to legislate just the restrictions of the symptoms, but the gospel goes straight to the heart and brings the needed transformation at that level from which mm. then produces, Jesus says, you're going to know the tree by its fruit. Yeah. So, um, so it, it, it's getting at the roots so that the fruit is, is good. And even yeah. after conversion, we still have to fight our flesh till the day we die. Yeah. It's not like Absolutely. we get, it's not like we get this new heart when we come to Christ and somehow my sinfulness fades away. In fact, it becomes more intensified because now I can see it whereas before I couldn't even see it. And yeah. the the verse that I'm thinking of is uh, the piggyback on Bill's verse about Jesus talking about how evil the heart is. Jesus, this is John. Now, Jesus was entrusting himself to no man, for he knew what was in man and needed no one to bear witness of what was in man. In other words, Jesus knows how sinful we are, and that makes me not trust people ultimately. We, there's a level of trust that you, you don't want to be paranoid. But and, and, you know, one other thing on this, there's a story that back in, I don't know, maybe the 1920s, a movie theater came to a small town in the West for the first time, the Great Train Robbery, we'll say. And when the bandits came up on the screen to rob the train, some of the cowboys in the theater got out their pistols and started shooting at the screen. And, of course, it didn't stop the movie because it kept going. But nobody thought of turning the pistol on the projector and hitting the projector. (laughs) And that's the problem. You know, my problem is not that I uh, am too gossipy or I lust or I'm angry. My problem is my heart. (laughs) And yes, Jesus is the only one that could change that thing, but it's a battle, a lifelong battle to let him change it because I tend to take over again. Yeah, I so appreciate that you said that, Tom, because I think it gets very confusing, understandably, for Christians, that once you say yes to Jesus and, and convert and decide to follow that, you get this new heart, which simply means that, you know, it's all over. You don't have to worry about fighting sin anymore. You, you know, it's just that's the deal. And no, what you're saying yes to is that there now is a new power at work in your life that has a capacity to increasingly set you free from the powers of sin and death. And it's it's never an all at once because we live in this perishable body. It's it's part of the beautiful invitation of being raised imperishable. Uh, we, we It's simply... Uh, we we will not be made perfect this side of it, but what we do is we get we get those tastes of the beauty and wonder for which we're meant, as Jesus does increasingly set us free, and it continues to give us hope of that future when all things will finally be set right, mm-hmm. everything will be restored, no more tears, and we are raised imperishable. You know, the only Latin I know is simul justus et peccator, which is a big Reformation teaching, simultaneously saint and sinner. That when yeah. you come to Christ, when you're saved, when you're baptized, and you've come to Christ, you will, th- from that moment on, always be a saint, 
and you'll always be a sinner till you die. The sinner part doesn't go away until heaven. That helped me. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's truly, I mean, it, it is a lifelong process. There is no finish line that we've we've been fully formed, you know, and uh, we're fully sanctified. We're fully like Jesus. And I I, I so love, I mean, Paul's word in, in Philippians 2.13, it says that we are, to, we are to work out our salvation with yep. fear and trembling. And in other words, we, we get to work out what God is working in. Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 a, it's a lifelong, messy, <laughs> messy process. But again, I love Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in us is faithful to see it through to completion. Amen. So we have that confidence and that trust that, that it's God's work and we get to participate in that. And that's the beautiful invitation. All right, let me take a little break. I got a nice uh, email from a listener named Mark who said, uh, Bill and guests, thank you for boldly discussing what our society needs to hear. This is a captivating conversation. So I wanted to tell you that because you guys aren't getting paid. So. <laughs> <laughs> we're, Until we're, now. We're not. <laughs> oh. Wait, wait, we're not? Any, any I didn't know that. No, no, no. no. Yeah, that's why Man. I figured I'd announce it on the air. And then uh, <laughs> he also said, I will I will happily join Peter on his pilgrimage to find a refuge in the Canadian wilderness. Canada's more oh, liberal than America. We could share the cost. This is getting better. Yeah, I know. It's getting better for you, pal. All right. <laughs> yeah. Let me know if you've got a question. We still have more time on Guy Talk, 877-933-2484. This is the extended version. We'll be right back. Yesterday on the show, Rebecca and I read uh, four chapters of John, and we love that. And I always love when I come across John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. Anybody know what the uh, what the original Greek word is for world? Cosmos. Yeah. Probably. Cosmos. Probably. Cosmos. Yeah. So uh, was Jesus' death on the cross for the entire universe? Yes. And there, there are two ways that that word cosmos is used throughout the church. One is meaning universe, which is accurate. Cosmos also meaning sinful people. Uh, they're both that have been used that way. What it comes down to, though, is this. I remember in seminary we had to write a major paper at the end of uh, seminary, and it was on some cataclysmic event. How would we handle it? Mine was on aliens coming to the world, and how would we talk to them about Jesus? How would we interact with them? And, you know, everybody kind of laughed at me, but now that I'm seeing that the president's soon going to uncover there are aliens, you know, I feel I was way ahead of the game. Mm -hmm. But the point is, there's no difference. There's no difference. The point is we share, uh, we want to share the gospel with everyone, and I think out there, even in the universe, eternity has been planted in people's hearts. It's just how are they going to articulate it? Just as like when we found people in the South Sea Islands, they had eternity in their hearts. They just didn't know it was Jesus. And and the Apostle Paul teaches that uh, the present creation is suffering the pangs yeah. of birth pain. But one day when Christ returns, he's going to restore everything, heaven and earth. So even the even nature has been infected by sin and the fall of Adam. So it, you know, it is, uh, I don't think that means you're necessarily going to see your dog in heaven. You know, we get that question. Will Mitzi be in heaven? You know, I, I don't think Mitzi has an eternal soul. My guess is no. But some people are so intent that my dog will be in heaven. But the, the creation will be restored. What is that? Is that Romans 8? 
about the creation being restored. Yep. Are you enjoying your last time on the show? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> people get upset. But hey, Tom, I'm sitting here right now with my dog at oh. my feet, and I, I named yeah. him Tozer, and I, I am convinced he's going to be in heaven. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. yeah I'm, yep. I've had yep. a lot of people say dogs are going to be there. Up, so, <laughs> find the verse. I'm sorry. Find the verse. No, to your point, to your point, well, there's one in Psalms that you can kind of twist it, you know, but you can do it for a lot of things. So anyway, that's not the point. But, yeah, I think that <laughs> idea of salvation, it's— because sin broke everything and encompassed everything, um, that then Christ's salvation matches that. It, it meets it, and, it, and, it, and it, it's meant for a full, complete restoration of the cosmos. I mean, and again, pointing to the ultimate culmination of heaven, um, you know, coming out, the new Jerusalem coming out, out of heaven, and the, the kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of, of heaven, and the two becoming one. And so I think it points to this total, complete, restoration yeah agreed i think there's a there's a notion that heaven is some floating barge of gold somewhere in the andromeda galaxy that we all get beamed to and when we die and and um the the notion within scripture is is the idea of what you just said i think justin too where heaven and earth become one where where god once again makes his dwelling place among his people and and i think if we're uh, if you look at the scriptures god is always making a move for a way back to be with his people. And so there, there's going to be sort of this merging of the corrupted world in which we live with the perfect world uh, of the heavens in which God dwells. The, the Jewish concept of heaven is simply the place where God's, God dwells and where his will is done, which is part of why Jesus invites us into that beautiful Lord's Prayer when he says, mm-hmm. uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's actually praying that in the present moments, there will be a merger of heaven and earth in terms of the way that those worlds uh, can collide and interact with another. And and that'll be, again, a foretaste of the final restoration where heaven and earth once again become one. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and I think that's such a beautiful invitation. I, too, think, Justin, that there's less than zero chance that Tozer's going to be with us. Tozer's absolutely <laughs> going to be with us in heaven. Uh, ha, 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 ha. Thanks, Peter. Let Thanks, me I clarify the that. animal yep. theology for a moment. Uh, I'm dead serious. <laughs> in paradise with Adam and Eve, there were animals. Right? Yes, that's true. All right. We're going to a restoration of God's original intent. I believe in heaven there will be animals. Will my dog be there? Uh My particular dog? I don't think so. Uh And and Thunder and I have already had a talk about that, and he's okay. Uh But the point is there will be animals there. And, you know, another another thing Christians can genuinely (laughs) disagree about um, the way I understand, I'm going to miss uh, you guys. I'm going to miss both of you. The way I <laughs> the way I understand is that First Peter, everything is going to melt at the end and then come down the new heavens and the new earth. So I think this this earth will be history. But there are yep. other Christians that believe yes, it will melt, but it'll still exist afterwards, and God will even use this earth cleansed in some way to be part of eternity. I, I don't read the Bible that way, but there are sincere Christians that believe somehow purged and cleansed and melted, this earth will be part of the new creation. It's not a, it's not a big deal, um, but there are two views on that one even. Well, I can tell people, I'm in sales, not management, so I don't know what's going to be done there. Yeah. But in terms of sales, I want people to know about Jesus. Yeah. All right, here's a question. Uh, will you give me in layman's terms the meaning of sovereign? having a hard time with supreme in power or authority. Mm. So the, God the, rules uh, everything. He rules everything. God is totally uh-huh. in control. He rules everything. That's what sovereign means. Mm-hmm. I think that maybe to phrase it in a compound word, I think of a, it, in terms of the way God is sovereign, he's sovereign as a, as a servant king. So, I mean, the way that Jesus came and embodied, I mean, he said all in, 
authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So it's one who has all authority, all power and control, but it's the way that that control is then utilized and implemented for the, for the good and for the restoration and exactly what we're all talking about for the restoration of all things. Well, in sovereignty, yeah, I think, uh, go ahead, Peter. Yeah, go ahead, Tom. I'll go ahead. Now, <laughs> sovereignty. You might as well talk. It's your last time on. I often hear people say, I often hear people say, rightfully so, that the Lord's in control. Well, that makes it really hard for the rest of us to explain when three children die in the same family yep. in a car accident. Mm, right. Or when a family comes down with a disease and dies. I've come to the conclusion that I, I try not to use the word control for sovereign, but so much more the final word. Because he's sovereign, he will have the final word over everything, life and death, good and bad, the future, the present, whatever it is. Um, otherwise, if he was totally in control, then I have to become a Calvinist like Tom mm-hmm. and say mm-hmm. that when bad things happen, it's the Lord's will. Amen. And I don't believe that personally. Oh, okay. I believe that he's against that. So we have a, a, little, a little... We have a huge disagreement, that, yes, but we I do. love Tom. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I love you, Tom. Can, can I tell a quick story? Yeah, go ahead. All right, true story. Here's an, a five-year-old girl who's killed by a drunk driver. The, this, the family's going to have two funerals, one in southern Minnesota and then the burial service up in northern Minnesota. The first pastor gets up and preaches, well, just know for sure that this was not the will of God for this little girl to have her life stuffed out by a drunk driver at age five. Just uh, know that that was not the hand of our father. They drive up north for the second funeral, totally different pastor who says... Well, we don't understand uh, why this happened, but we know that our God is in control of all things for our good, Romans eight twenty eight, and we just believe that in some way it was God's will to take her at this moment. Now, I don't know about you. Personally, I like sermon number two. I get comfort out of that. I don't get a lot of comfort out of sermon number one. Now, it's partly true. Drunkenness is, and killing people is wrong. But on the other hand, I believe God's even in control of evil, of our evil actions, you know? Theologically, yes, but it's not our experience. That's the problem. Okay. And part of the problem is to get people to trust in Jesus in the first place with his, his, we talk about his grace, his love, his mercy. But then when you make him sovereign in the sense that, yeah, he took my daughter, he took my son in the Vietnam War, and he gave my wife uh, cancer and she just died, is a hard thing for people to comprehend. Mm -hmm. Now, theologically, I understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what the way Jesus presented it, he presented much more the outstretched hand of love and not simply the big hammer that's going to come down on people. Okay. So he's in charge of both. I'm not denying that. How about this one? Uh, Joseph is thrown down into the well, abused by his brother, sold into slavery. And then in Genesis chapter 15, he says to his brothers many years later, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Yes. So he, David's, uh, Joseph's abuse was meant for evil by his brothers, but God meant it for good to keep the family alive. So I have no problem with yeah. that. Yeah, and then Romans no 8, 8, 8, 28, God causes all things for good. All right, nice comment from a listener. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> nice comment from a listener. It said, thank you for all your diligence in the kingdom and your continuance in proclaiming the truth of God and his words. So thankful for Faith mm. Radio. It just oh, came in great. from this program. Oh. And uh, my friend Paul said, uh, amen. And, keep, cool. and with Guy's Talk, keep up the engaging conversation. So... Really, thank you to all the listeners, and yes. thank you, gentlemen, yeah. for being thank here. Thank you very much. Thank you, you Bill. Thanks yep. for having me. Thanks, overtime. Bill. Yeah, we're going to wrap up our extended edition of Guy Talk, and then after a short break, we'll be back with Dr. Michael Brown. Be right back.
Welcome back to the show. Dr. Michael Brown is my guest. He's the host of the nationally syndicated radio broadcast, The Line of Fire. He's the author of, I think, over 40 books or so, and is recognized as one of the top evangelical leaders in the nation by Newsmax. And he's written a new book called Evangelicals at the Crossroads. Will we pass the Trump test? I know that's a very um, divided subject. A lot of evangelicals today are deeply divided over Donald Trump because I hear about it every time his name comes up on the show. And uh, anyway, Dr. Michael Brown is with us. Michael, welcome. Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's always, I bet you're as busy as can be, aren't you? Yeah, but but in a blessed way. Yeah, I know. And, and, and really, for those of us that know the Lord, for those of us that preach the gospel, let alone radio hosts, there's never been a better moment. I mean, it's, it's a hard moment. It's a painful moment. The nation is divided. People are hurting. But it's a ripe time for the gospel. It, we've got to seize this moment. And, and really, in many ways, the direction of the nation for a generation or more is at stake right now. A lot is hanging in the balance. It goes far beyond the presidential elections. But yeah, critical time and, and so glad to be busy and alive in the midst of it. Yeah, and thank you for saying that, Michael, because there is, uh, what you said is so true. The the time is now for people. There's so many people turning looking for answers, looking for hope, looking for uh, some direction in their life. And this is when pastors and teachers and people like yourself and radio hosts and everybody else has to be on their A-game. Yeah, it's a unique moment in history. Uh, Many of us that are older, I'm 65, remember the 60s. I mean, there's the old slogan, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. But (laughs) uh, the old saying, but, but, but in fact, those of us who lived through the upheaval then, see a lot of things parallel today. And and the shift in our culture as a result of the 60s was so dramatic that the radicals and the hippies ended up going to the universities, becoming the professors, becoming mentors of presidents and and things. And and the sexual revolution, everything unfolded. It it brought a lot of havoc to our nation. And we're we're, we're right at a precipice now where there could be massive societal change, massive cultural change, and, and the rise of a mobocracy that would want to snuff out the voice of the church. I mean, very, very significant, critical moment. And, and we must be alert. We must be like the sons of Issachar in First Chronicles 12 who understand the times and know what Israel should do. It's, it's one of those moments. Mm-hmm. So your new book, Evangelicals at the Crossroads, Will We Pass the Trump Test? Uh, are you in the mood to talk about your new book? Oh, yes, sir. Terrific. Absolutely. I figured yeah. so. All right. So let me just uh, come right out and ask, why Why has Donald Trump been such a divisive figure among evangelicals? You could say, in short, he's done more for evangelical causes than any president in memory, and he's done more to hurt the evangelical <laughs> cause than any president in memory. <laughs> okay. So uh, let, me, let me flesh this out. During the primaries, I really opposed him. I wrote articles opposing him. I, I, I opposed him on radio. I warned about him. Look at his past. He can't be trusted. I preferred Ted Cruz. I, I preferred everybody on the Republican side before Donald Trump. I said, look, I hope I'm wrong, and if it's him versus Hillary, I'll reevaluate. But, you know, he's, he's – all of us for say for years, character counts, morality matters, and here you got this multiple married guy boasting about his adulterous affairs – makes his money on casinos and strip clubs and dishonest, dis, you know, and can't trust his political affiliation and can't you see how obvious it is? He's just using evangelicals to get in once he's in and he's going to trash us. Well, that's not what happened. 
He's listened to evangelicals to this day. He's been the best friend we've had in many ways. He's been consistently pro-life. He's appointed fine justices across the country. He moved the embassy to Jerusalem. He kept his word there. He's fought for our religious liberties. He's pushed back against radical LGBT activism in the government and in the schools. You go down the list, he's, he's pushed back against tyrannical China. He's pushed back against the Iran nuclear deal. He stood with Israel. He, he's fought Islamic terrorism. He, he's done so much that's commendable and important to evangelicals. And, and things like prison reform helped so many black Americans uh, standing with historic black colleges, uh, the employment uh, going, you know, skyrocketing and, and unemployment going down, helping so many Americans, poorer Americans. That's all really commendable. That's excellent stuff. But on the flip side, to the extent we are associated with him, especially white evangelicals that helped get him elected, to that extent, there's been a lot of collateral damage. His nastiness, his divisiveness, his throwing people under the bus, his name-calling, it's kind of dragged us down on a national level and made us an uglier nation than we even were before. And to the extent we're associated with him, we look bad. People won't talk to us about Jesus if they find out we voted for Donald Trump. Now, some of that's inflamed by the left-wing media. Some of that is the, the narrative of the left that makes him into a Hitler type of figure. But a lot of people just don't like him. They feel the way I did towards him in the primaries, except worse. And, and there's nothing he's done to win them over. So we are in a precarious position that if we vote our conscience – it can alienate people. On the other hand, we have to vote our conscience for the good of the nation. So that's why I say we're at the crossroads. And I, I do lay out in the book how we can pass what I call the Trump test, which I can, I can explain. But, yeah, no, I'd love to hear uh, about that. Yeah. Uh, so let me start there. The, the Trump test, I, I mean two things by it. One, can we vote for him as president without compromising our testimony? How do we do that? How do we manage to vote for Trump and even support his good decisions without compromising our testimony in the process. That's one thing, and that has to be carefully navigated. The other thing is, can we differ as believers about Donald Trump and remain united around Jesus? Can we unite around Jesus while differing over him, or will our differences over Trump divide us in such a way that just when the nation needs the church most— we'll have no witness because we're tearing each other apart. Wow. That's a great point. Okay. Um, that is something to think about, and that's a, a, you, are, you articulated that very well. All right. Um, let, let's talk about, in your book, you mentioned, uh, you asked this question, has God uniquely raised up Donald Trump? Has he? Yes, he has. And let me explain why I say that and what it means. So I have a whole chapter in the book where I unpack that. And when I pulled out a little bit recently and put it in an article, the article went viral. It seems people are interested in this. When you look at Trump's unlikelihood of beating all these top Republican candidates, you got to remember when he got in, it's like, are you kidding me? What a joke. Donald Trump is going to be Jeb Bush. He's going to be Ted Cruz. He's going to be Scott Walker, John Kasich, Marco Rubio. Mike Huckabee, Ben Carson, Carly Fiore, are you kidding me? Trump's good. So the unlikelihood of him winning everything that he won, that's one thing. Then on election day, there's no way he gets in. 
all the polls are clear. He doesn't win. Hillary Clinton's in. Coronator. You know, Queen Hillary, she's in. If you remember watching the news that night, it was it was amazing to watch because the shock. What? 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 Trump? He's going to win? So the unlikelihood of that is one thing. The other thing is there was a, there were a series of prophetic words from Christians who didn't know each other or who had no collusion with each other from around the world. And one after another say they believe God was raising up Donald Trump. Some immediately had to say, I'm not defending him, support, I, you know, just saying I believe it's going to happen. And a number of them were drawn to the passage about Cyrus in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45. And there God says he's raising up Cyrus, who is a, an idol-worshiping foreign king, and Cyrus was going to rebuild Jerusalem and restore Jerusalem. Well, well foreign kings don't do that. The, the, the king, the leader of the empire, crushes the others. He doesn't send them back to their homeland and say, rebuild your temple. But Cyrus and the Persians had a different policy. And here's Cyrus, who in the, in the famous Cyrus Cylinder that was discovered in 1879, because back to the 500s BC, he's worshiping Marduk, the god of the Babylonians. He's praising Marduk for raising him up. And here, Isaiah 45, Yahweh says, I'm raising you up, even though you don't know me. And people said, that's the case with Donald Trump. God is raising him up even though he doesn't know the Lord, and God's raising him up to do good for the church. Now, I do believe he's been uniquely raised up. In other words, more than just God's normal activity in elections and so on, and we, we believe God is working in the midst of our voting. But it, it's more than that, and there are multiple purposes in God raising up Trump, in my view. One is the good that he has done. Another is what he has revealed in the hearts of people, the, the, the bias of the media, the radicality of the Democrat Party, the willingness of many Christians to put country before conviction, to put the flag before the cross. So he's revealed a lot, and I don't, I don't know if he'll be reelected. I think at this point the only way he gets back in is by unique divine backing because it doesn't look good. And a lot of his former allies are now against him. And yet, it seems there has been a divine purpose. It doesn't mean that everything he does is good and right. It doesn't mean that he's anointed by the Lord like a, a godly pastor is. But it does mean that there's something unique and unusual uh, in God raising him up. And, and without that, it's difficult for me to explain what's really happened. Mm -hmm. Michael, has uh, this president been the strongest pro-life president in history, would you say? Yes, certainly. Uh, Ronald Reagan was strong and consistent, but, but Trump has even been more consistent. Trump actually addressed the, the march for life. Uh, he has been perhaps even more consistent in his appointing of justices uh, that, that have a pro-life track record. So yeah, as unlikely as that is, again, who would, who would have thought it? Uh, on the other hand, who would have thought that you get like a grade B Hollywood actor like Ronald Reagan that helps bring down the Soviet Union? So God, God <laughs> right. does a lot of unusual things. Right, right. So evangelicals always say, look at character counts. So are, are evangelicals right now using a different standard when it comes to Trump? Yeah, that's another whole chapter in my book. Does character still count and does morality still matter? And it's kind of jarring to read quotes from some of our major evangelical leaders from 20 years ago in the Clinton days, think, ew, 
if we applied those same standards today, we couldn't vote for Trump. And it's not – we're not saying Trump's been immoral in the White House, but who he's been in the past and the way he behaves himself in other ways are certainly not Christian. Some have compromised. When we defend Trump at every turn, when he can do no wrong, when it seems our allegiance to him trumps our, our, our Christian standards, yes, some have compromised. But I look at it like this. There are various aspects to character. Dennis Prager pointed out that when you keep your word, that's character as well. So Trump has shown exceptional character in terms of keeping promises and refusing to bow down to pressure that is unimaginable to any of us. I mean, I get attacked day and night as a leader and for the stance I take. I mean, literally day and night, sometimes by the second. There's another internet post or comment or video or whatever so be it. You know, it's, it's my calling. But I can't imagine what the president goes. I mean, it's, we're talking about different universes with, with the assault he's under day and night, and there must be spiritual assault. And yet he stands strong. He doesn't waver. He keeps his promises. That's amazing. But because character does count, the negative aspects of his character have hurt as well. So good has been done but with collateral damage. I, I use the wrecking ball analogy because he's been called God's wrecking ball, that the wrecking ball is wonderful for demolishing a house, an old house that needs to be demolished. It's wonderful, but it's not good for renovating a room. And yet the, the wrecking ball has swung both ways. So a lot of good has been done. Let's stack it up over here. But because of his character flaws, bad has been done as well. When we defend his flaws, then it hurts our witness even more. That means when someone says, Trump's this, 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 yeah, I don't like any of that at all. But, you know, I'm kind of looking at the life of the unborn and, and that we've got a better chance of saving babies' lives with Trump than Hillary or Biden. So that's why I vote for him. And, yeah, I, I hate when he treats people like that. But, you know, when we're dealing with standing up against China and perhaps fighting for the religious liberties of persecuted minorities there – I'd rather have him doing it than Joe Biden. I don't think Biden would do well in that. You just go through the issues. But his character flaws have definitely hurt us in the midst of things. Yeah, he's often his own worst enemy at times, isn't he? Yes. Uh, Think of this. Mount Rushmore, he gives a great inspirational speech, right? Excellent speech, powerful speech, uh, and, and good for civil rights. You know, he's mentioning Martin Luther King and Jackie Robinson in, in, the, in the 20th century. He's mm-hmm. mentioning uh, Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington, Ella Fitzgerald, and, and in making clear where we stand and celebrating American history and renouncing racism and so on. And then what is it? The next day he goes after Bubba Wallace, right. the, the, the black NASCAR driver. You right. think, oh, please, please what are you doing? <laughs> even, even if you think the whole thing was a hoax that he set up, which doesn't seem to be the case, but even if you – even if you believe that, keep your mouth shut. Zip it. Zip it, Mr. President. <laughs> so it's frustrating. And when people express their exasperation with him, I'll agree. But then when they say he's a racist, if you vote for him, you're, you're a racist. Say, well, number one, I'm not a racist. There's never been a hint of racism in my life. But, but number two, why do you say the president is a racist? Based on what? And, and then you try to get to the truth about things because here's what we're fighting. We're fighting – the president's real errors and character weaknesses. We're also fighting the left's narrative of him, you know, that he allegedly called neo-Nazis very fine people, you right. know, the Charlottesville lie. That gets repeated 
over and over and over. Or that somehow the man joyfully encaged immigrant children. Oh, yeah, Trump is just into caging children. And that, you know, how can you say you have compassion when he caged children? It's like, hey, nobody liked the policy. Yeah. It's not a positive thing. Started under Obama. Whatever happened under Trump, we move on from there. But how do you feel about killing babies? That's a bigger issue to me. Yeah. Dr. Michael Brown is my guest. His new book, Evangelicals at the Crossroads. Will we pass the Trump test? That's uh, take a little break. We'll be right back with Dr. Michael Brown. Dr. Michael Brown is my guest. Michael has written over 40 books, and he's got a new one out called Evangelicals at the Crossroads. Will we pass the Trump test? And, uh, Michael, i got all kinds of comments coming in, but I want to ask you, um, what is uh, some of the points that you lay out in, in, in your 10-point strategy for evangelicals to pass this Trump test? Yeah, let me go through some of those because, Bill, much more important than who is in the White House is the state of the church in America. Amen. So, look, I wrote a whole book, my second book, about Trump and evangelicals. And, and I know it's an important topic. As a radio show host, I'm talking about this a lot, writing about this a lot. I'm not downplaying the importance of the elections, but I am saying that far more important than who gets in in 2020 is the state of the church. And, and can we maintain our testimony? And can we be witnesses to the nation? And can we uh, spark revival and, and renewal? So I, I really hope your, your listeners will get this book. I put a lot of effort into it with the hope that it would help us navigate this minefield and, and come out in better shape than we started. So the very first principle of, of the 10 is that we, we must put the cross before the flag, that sometimes we get so caught up with patriotism that that becomes more important to us than the preaching of the gospel, mm. that, that make America great is a bigger issue to us than the Great Commission. And look, America's not going to be great unless America's godly. And America's not going to be godly without the church awakening. So we put the cross before the flag. We don't eliminate the flag. We're not unpatriotic, unpatriotic, but we put the cross before the flag. That's number one. Number two, we must proclaim that Donald Trump is our president, not our savior. We tell, we tell our friends, people around us, look, you want to know who I am. Watch my life. Listen to my testimony. Watch the way I conduct myself. Watch the way I behave with my family in the workplace. Uh, look at me. That's who I am. I'm all about Jesus. He's my, he's my Savior. He's my Lord. He's my all in all. He died for me. I owe him my life. The president gets my vote. It, it, it's that simple. And we need to shout this out because sometimes we become so sensitive about the president. You know, he's fought so much for evangelicals. People feel they need to fight for him. It's like he's not the Savior. He's not the savior. We don't have to defend the indefensible. He can handle himself, too. He can fight for himself. Let us make our message loud and clear. Donald Trump is our president. Jesus is our savior. And then a third point, we must put greater emphasis on spiritual activity than on political activity. Amen, Michael. You know, you think of it, the amount of money that's raised for political ads every year, and really, it's, it's just a wash on a certain level, it's like, it's like throwing money away. Uh-huh. B- because if, if you're my, my, my opponent, 
I, I need more funding. I need another million dollars for an ad campaign against you. Well, I get my million. Now you need your million. And now it's just the ante keeps getting up. We had a real close race in North Carolina, where I currently live, uh, in 2016. And every time I'd go to watch a YouTube video, there'd be an ad for one or the other. I, I mean, every, it didn't matter which way you turned, you were getting bombarded. We throw so much money away. We think about it day and night. Okay, it has its place, but let us put prayer first. Let us put intimacy with God first, worship first, sharing the gospel with our neighbor, reaching out in our community, put greater emphasis on spiritual activity than on political activity. A fourth point is, is this. We must not get caught up with election fever. Uh, you know, now it's, it's not just every four years for a few months. It's pretty much a 24-7 year-in, year-out news cycle. And, and many of us are so bombarded with the news, either the left or the right, and we're reacting and caught up. Let's step back. Let's be heavenly people. Let's get God's perspective. Let's step back, not get caught up in election fever. And again, each of these points I, I open up at length. Another is we must not justify carnality and unchristian behavior. If the president acts in ways that are unchristian, we don't like that. We don't like when he called this one a dog, or when he threw this one under the bus, or when he, he lied about something. Yeah, don't like that. I wish he wouldn't do it. But, you know, I've, I've never known a politician to be as godly as I'd like them to be, and, and I'm not about to defend, to defend this one. But once again, here's where he gets my vote. Uh, a sixth thing is, is we've got to recapture our prophetic voice. And let me just read a snippet from, from a longer quote that I have from, from Martin Luther King in the book. June 11, 1967, he said, The church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. And he said, if the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. And, and I really feel that right now we're at a moment with the chaos of the society, from COVID-19 to, to economic shutdown to questions of do we gather in our buildings or not to worship God, to concerns about racism and injustice, to protests, to riots, to constant upheaval, and, and a shaking the likes of which we've never seen uh, in, in our lifetimes, all these things at once, it's a great time for us to step back, kind of regather, regroup, and then reemerge with a focus on Jesus. Not a focus on politics, not a focus on Trump, but a focus on Jesus. And then even though we stand against various moral evils in our society. Let it be known even more what we are for and who we are for and why we live the way we do. And then we can start to speak to the nation because America desperately needs the voice of the church. As much as the church is hated, the church is needed. And, and people have questions. They're full of fear. They don't know what's coming tomorrow. They're uncertain about their own futures. We should be the ones with stability and strength bringing divine answers to them. So those are some of the things I get into. Uh, another is we must be holistic Christians, truly pursuing justice and righteousness for all. And let, let's lead the way in these things, not just jump on the world's bad wagon, but, but lead the way. Uh, we walk in love towards those who vilify us and oppose us. So the more people hate and mock and attack us, the more we bless. We must unite around Jesus rather than divide over Trump. And, and then lastly, we must lead the nation in repentance, knowing that repentance prepares the way of the Lord, opening a path for revival, 
visitation and awakening. So that's that's a 10-point strategy. We we unpack it at length in in the book. But if we can do these things, none of which have to do with how we vote. In other words, this is how we live. If we'll prioritize these things and live in this way, then if we feel that Trump is the best candidate, we can vote for him and still be shining examples of Jesus in our society. Mm -hmm. Dr. Michael Brown and his new book, Evangelicals at the Crossroads, Will We Pass the Trump Test? You can go to Amazon and other bookstores and pick up this book. Michael, uh, I've had a great week. I just was reminded that I've had uh, two Messianic Jews on in two days, so I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. Sweet. There, there you go. Who, who is the other? Uh, my friend Tom Berkowitz. Okay, Tom, I, please give Tom my love and tell him I remember Cheetah Pizza. <laughs> Everyone remembers Cheetah Pizza. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for doing the show. Uh, just really appreciate having you on. Always a joy, Bill. God All right, bless thanks you. so much. Yeah. Bye-bye. That, that wraps up our show for the day. If you missed any of it, you can go to MyFaithRadio.com and go to the uh, show page, Afternoons with Bill Arnold, and uh, just let you know I just love you and appreciate you, and thank you for listening. I hope you have a great night. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.